Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. While many in power recklessly escalate tensions with Russia, there is very little discussion of the geopolitical significance of this aggression and the dangerous consequences people could suffer as a result. The establishment's anti-Russian sentiment goes beyond allegations of election hacking, with leading U.S. intelligence officials labeling Russia as the number one existential threat to the United States. One of the foremost experts on U.S.-Russia relations is sounding the alarm that the potential for nuclear confrontation is greater than ever before, fueled with virtually no debate by the mass media. Dr. Stephen Cohen is one of the leading scholars on Russia, He's Professor Emeritus of Russian Studies at Princeton and New York University, and is the author of many books on the subject, including Soviet Fates and Lost Alternatives, From Stalinism to the New Cold War, and the forthcoming book, Why Cold War Again? How America Lost Post-Soviet Russia. The Department of Defense has just declared Russia as the number one existential threat facing this country. Professor, it seems so interesting that we just came from a war on terror to now a war on Russia, um, despite the rise of ISIS. Right. Well, they didn't just do this. I mean, this business that Russia is the number one existential threat has been unfolding this drama, this false drama, at the expense of our national security, uh, maybe for a decade, but it certainly intensified under the Obama administration because you had the American commander of NATO, the Joint Chiefs of Staff here all saying number one existential threat. Meanwhile, Russia was of course in the person of Putin repeatedly almost begging the United States to join it in an alliance against terrorism, not only in Syria, but a kind of global war. I don't know if a global war against terrorism is possible, it's a separate issue, mm -hmm. but Russia wanted to partner with the United States. Obama was inclined very briefly in September 2016, I think, but that was killed by our Department of Defense when they attacked those Syrian troops. Um, and so Russia's been made the number one existential threat. I think that folly, because certainly it's not even on the list of the top five or ten, in my judgment, of what really threatens us has become linked inextricably with this wild demonization of Putin personally. Because it's the demonization of Putin as a man who assassinates his enemies, who invades countries, who is a, I mean, now in 2017 we're being told that his alleged hacking of the American election was only part of his plan to destroy democracies around the world, and now he's going for Europe. I mean, it has really become right up there with the former Soviet threat, but now it's personified in Putin. It's this loathing for, or demonizing, or vilifying of Putin as a leader, as a person which shades occasionally into Russophobia, transferring this, but not that often, into vilification of Russia. I think that's really behind this, this uh, notion that this is our number one threat. And by the way, it's not only to the United States, as I said, they're now talking about the 2017 elections in Europe, and Putin will probably hack those too. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's just, there's no facts or logic to any of this. It's taken on a life of its own, so we've got Senate hearings and uh, 
Obama's threatened some covert action against Russia, which is very dangerous because the Kremlin regards this as a declaration of war. Oh, absolutely. We don't know, is he going to attack banks or nuclear command and control? I mean, you just don't do things like this when you, both sides have got bad nerves and nuclear weapons. But the military intelligence com community certainly understands that why this deflection, why this misdirection in such a potentially dangerous tinderbox? I've been around long enough to observe, and I've had enough former students go to work for intelligence communities, and I can remember what happened involving the intelligence communities regarding the Bay of Pigs. When Kennedy was so angry at the bad information they gave him, he said he'd like to break them up. I can remember the bogus information they gave Johnson about the so-called Tonkin Resolution, which drug us deeper into Vietnam. I can remember Iran-gate scandals, what the CIA was behind under Reagan. Uh, we all mention the bad information intelligence gave about Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. Uh, there's a long history of wrong intelligence. So let's deconstruct that. It's politicized intelligence. Mm. So there is no, so far as I know, no the intelligence community. There's not even a the CIA. There are groups, uh, different political impulses, different vested interests in these organizations, and often they've been at war among themselves within, say, the CIA. We know this. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a fact. I think we're seeing that now with the hacking allegations, and I, in all likelihood, later we will discover this was a war within the CIA itself. I mean, the FBI tried not to get involved. It said, we don't know, but it got dragged mm -hmm. into it. Mm -hmm. So, you're, now your question. Mm -hmm. What do they really know? I know, as close as I can say for a fact, and since we don't seem to do facts in America anymore when it comes to Russia, we should be careful, that there are very different views about Washington's policy toward Russia inside the intelligence community. I, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but to me, this mis may be the single most dangerous moment in American-Russian relations. The Cuban Missile Crisis is always said to have been the turning point mm -hmm. in our awareness of how dangerous the Cold War was, and that after we avoided nuclear Armageddon over Khrushchev having put in missiles, or at least the silos in Cuba, and then back down in light of Kennedy's leadership, that both sides became wise. And the Cold War continued, but there was a code of conduct. Everybody understood where the danger lines were, and that never again did we, advertently at least, there were some near misses accidentally when radars indicated a nuclear attack and there was none, some large seagull or something. We all live at the mercy of this technology. That was true, though, for uh, until Gorbachev and Reagan thought they had ended mm -hmm. the Cold War, thought they had ended mm -hmm. the Cold War, uh, there was a code of conduct between the Soviet Union and the United States. That doesn't exist today. So there's uh, barely any communication on a now, diplomatic it's level. It's even worse than that, that after the Cuban Missile Crisis, 62, the two sides began to develop interactive cooperation, student exchanges, scientific exchanges, hotlines, uh, constant talks about nuclear weapons, nuclear reductions, trade agreements, cultural, mm -hmm. we sent, and all this. That's come to an end, along with communication. And yet,
And yet, that against this backdrop, I've been saying we were in a new Cold War, moving there with Russia for more than 10 years. We are certainly there today. But here's what's also different. There are now three fronts in the new Cold War that are fraught with the possibility of actual war. There's the Baltic region in Poland, where NATO is unwisely building up its military presence. There is, of course, Ukraine, which could explode at any moment. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's Syria, where you've got Russian and American aircraft and others all flying. So you've got a multi-front potential Cuban Missile Crisis. And meanwhile, here in the United States, this hysterical reaction to alleged, because there's no proof's been produced, that somehow Putin put Trump in the White House. This combination of demented public discourse and grave danger abroad, I think, makes us in a danger at least comparable to the Cuban Missile mm -hmm. Crisis. And yet, nobody protests, nobody notices, and people march on. And you've compared it you know, to the Cuban Missile Crisis, saying then we at least knew what was happening here. This is all based on classified intelligence. We'll never see an investigation. We'll never see the evidence, right? Yeah, and 52% of Democratic voters don't just believe that Russia hacked the DNC and Podesta's emails. They think that Russia actually altered the vote. Yeah. That's a whole nother level. Times have changed. Uh, when I entered uh, public life, such as it was, as a kind of commentator on public affairs, as a young professor at Princeton, there was a debate in the late 70s and even in the 80s, after Gorbachev came to power, should we pursue more Cold War with Russia or should we have what's called detente? Detente then, nobody imagined you could actually end the Cold War at that time, but detente meant introducing more elements of cooperation in the relationship so we'd be safer. There was a lot of space, political space, media space, for both sides in the 70s and 80s. I mean, it was a fair fight. Now it's not. It's one hand clapping. The cold warriors dominate the media. Now how that happened, the journalism schools who are supposed to say something about media malpractice uh, seem silent. They're too busy deploring RT. That's why it's so scary because you look, people can mock RT and state media, but when you have a corporate media apparatus that essentially mimics what state media would do, um, where the New York Times and the Washington Post just paint the narrative for war time and again, whether it's Libya, Syria, or Russia. And it seems like this acquiescence and unquestioning stenography. You've talked about how these false narratives that dominate the discourse today are more dangerous, of course, than the so-called fake news hysteria. Um, one is that Putin is responsible for the buildup of the new Cold War. And uh, one senior military official recently admitted that there are U.S. Special Operations Forces in every single country surrounding Russia. The buildup of NATO forces, of course, at Russia's border is a huge source of tension. Uh, Professor, tell us about the agreement between Gorbachev and Reagan, what NATO was initially supposed to be, and how that promise has been broken today. So, you know, the, the history is well known. The issue in 1990 was whether or not Germany would be reunited. But the issue became then, once Germany is reunited, where does it sit geopolitically or strategically? 
and it was proposed to Gorbachev that Germany be put in NATO. Uh, England and France, which feared Germany, thought this wasn't a bad idea because they could keep control of Germany's any military aspirations if they rise there. But for Gorbachev, it was really a hard sell at home. After all, 27.5, best we know, Soviet citizens had died in the war against. Mm -hmm. For Gorbachev, this was a hard sell at home. And then the issue became NATO itself, which already was in Western Germany. Where would it go? And Baker was later quoted as having promised, he was Secretary of State, that NATO would not move one inch east, one inch east. George Kennan, whom I knew well when I was at Princeton and was, was thought to be the wisest American about Russia. Mm -hmm. Not sure he was, but he was thought to be an iconic figure. Warned repeatedly when Clinton was considering NATO expansion. This, was, this would be the most grievous mistake and it would lead to a new Cold War. But it didn't take a profound mind to understand this. NATO was a military alliance, had been created in the late 40s to deter or fight Soviet Russia. Russia was no longer Soviet, but was still Russia. When you begin to move it slowly, slowly, creep like Pac-Man gobbling mm -hmm. up all the, all the way to Russia's border, where it sits now, that worse than trouble is going to ensue. And the way it ramified, of course, is it was the driving force behind the Georgian War of 2008. We created a proxy army in Georgia. But people say it had nothing to do with the Ukrainian crisis, but it had everything to do. People say, well, the European Union offered Ukraine a very benign economic relationship. That wasn't a benign agreement, about a thousand pages long, and I reported this in one of my first articles on the crises, and everybody got very angry at me. There's a section called military security issues, and it's very clear that any country that signs this so-called Eastern Partnership Agreement with the EU is obliged to adhere to NATO security policies. By signing that, you became a de facto member of NATO. And this was just more of the attempt by Washington to get Ukraine into NATO, if not openly through the back door. And they're still at it. So what can we say? That the decision to expand NATO all the way, uh, including Ukraine and Georgia, has created a situation in which none of us are safe. And they call that national security? Professor, I wanted to talk briefly about Syria because, of course, the U.S. has been screaming about Russia's intervention in Syria, not really speaking much about their long-standing intervention as well with the funding and arming of um, Islamic extremists on the ground. Objectively, what has Russia's interference been? Like, why did they intervene? What was their purpose, and what has the outcome been? Well, let's start with the outcome, the fall of Aleppo. Mm -hmm. uh, there are two narratives. Well, they're probably a third, but there are two competing around the world. That the Russian-Syrian-Iranian taking of Aleppo was an act of great liberation. The city was liberated from terrorists. And there's plenty of footage, the footage can be faked, of people rejoicing when the Syrian army entered on the ground and the Russians sent in the humanitarian uh, trucks. The other is it was a war crime committed by Russia and Syria against people called rebels and their kids. Uh, I believe, though I know 
that war, it's why we call war hell, that innocents suffer above all, that the truth is closer to the liberation scenario than to the war crime scenario. ISIS retook Palmyra, the city that the Russians had liberated and had that concert at some months before, clearly abetted by the United States, which is allowing, as the United States seeks to, quote, liberate Mosul, allows the jihadists to go from Iraq unfettered into Syria, probably to help retake Yeah, right, Palmyra. they left that back door open. Right, I mean, they see them, I mean, they could bomb them if they wanted to, but they're moderate jihadists, I guess. But why did Russia go in? I think that really is the best question in some ways we could discuss today, because left out of all the scenarios mm. of demonizing Russia, you get the opinion, because it's left with you, that Russia has no legitimate national interests abroad. Russia should be okay with a NATO military base right on its several places, from Ukraine up to the Baltics on its border. What, you know, it's, we're good guys, why? And you know, you can do the usual analogy. Yeah, what if it was a Chinese-Russian mm -hmm. base in Canada or Mexico? I mean, it, this is just preposterous, we don't ask. But Syria seems remote, but it isn't. Russia has a very serious problem with domestic terrorism at home in the Caucasus. It has had for a long time. Somebody did the numbers, I can't vouch say for them, but the number of people lost to terrorism on 9-11 here and other terrorist acts involving Americans, and those lost to terrorism inside Russia are about the same, somewhere approaching 4,000. But Russia's growth continues to grow because it has this terrorism. Putin was very clear from the beginning, but the number one reason for sending the Russian Air Force to fight in Syria was, and Putin put it like this, it's either Assad in Damascus or it's the Islamic State in Damascus. And if the Islamic State is in Damascus, our national security, Russia's, is gravely threatened. For Putin, and, the, and it's not just Putin, for the Russian security elite, the fall of Damascus to the Islamic State would have been a national security disaster as they saw it. They counted on the American promise for two years that they were going to destroy the Islamic State. Right. And they said, good, let the Americans mm -hmm. do it. We don't need this. What happened during those two years? The Islamic State grew. It took more and more territory in Syria. Leave aside Iraq, correct? Mm -hmm. more, more Until we had something new we never had before. We had a terrorist organization that actually had become a state. I mean, they were running in their own way, while they weren't chopping off heads, municipal government, collecting taxes, currency, currency running schools, and the rest. We had never had this kind of phenomenon before. And the Russians were deeply worried, and the Americans said, don't worry, we'll take care of it. But they didn't. They were too busy trying to get rid of Assad. So when people say, Putin's a liar, we see this almost every day in the New York Times, they have to add that he didn't go to Syria to fight terrorism, he went to bolster Assad. You have to connect the dots. In Putin's mind, bolstering Assad, which meant what was left of the Syrian state and the Syrian army, was essential to stopping ISIS or the Islamic State in Syria. You couldn't separate the two. Not only was Putin candid about this, but he came to the UN a couple years ago or whenever 
and in his speech said, this is what we're confronting, join us. Russia's never said Assad forever in Damascus. That's the so-called political mm -hmm. process. But the Obama White House, which sent our Secretary of State Kerry forth to negotiate with this, with Lavrov, and seems to have constantly or repeatedly, or at least once, reached an agreement for this alliance, was sabotaged in Washington. It was more important for the forces in Washington to be rid of Assad or to prevent Putin from any kind of, quote, victory than it was to fight this terrorism in Syria. <clears throat> but you could go on. I mean, is there any major issue that we say we care about? Climate change, mm -hmm. uh, energy reserves, uh, trafficking in women, trafficking in drugs, anything where Russia is not either complicit enough to help out or central enough to help out. There is nothing can be solved of this, kind, of this magnitude without Russia. So the gravest danger today is not ending this American-fostered new Cold War and turning Russia even more into an opponent of our mutual interests. That's the gravest danger. The other grave danger, of course, is, is that no sensible person should trust the so-called nuclear safeguards. We're on, a, on the razor's edge of accidental nuclear war launch. Weapons on both sides are still on high alert. High alert means that the leader of the other country has somewhere between 13 and 25 minutes, 13 minutes and 25 minutes, to know whether that's a large seagull coming in or a nuclear weapon and to retaliate because the whole system is based on you won't attack me because I will. Right. Russia could be an immense threat to us by continuing to treat it the way we are. But you could turn this around in important ways very, very quickly. And of course, the mainstream will resist, it will fight. But politics is about fighting, so the handful of us, or maybe there are more, who think we have to do this for our own security, will have to fight. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against Empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.